So tonight I will be continuing on with a series that I've been doing on the ten paramis, or the requisites for enlightenment. Ten qualities of heart and mind that need to be developed, cultivated within us, brought forth, embodied, in order for awakening to occur. Uh, These ten paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. Over the last few weeks, uh, I've, been, I've spoken about um, generosity, virtue, and renunciation. And so tonight I will be continuing on with wisdom. With wisdom, it's very easy to see how all of the paramis are connected, related, and rely on each other to become strengthened. Just taking a look at wisdom in relation to some of the other paramis. Um, It's really wisdom that helps us to know the value of generosity, to know how when we're offering a gift to someone else, that it's a way of planting wholesome seeds. It's a way of strengthening our own efforts, energy, resolve towards awakening. It's a way in which when we bring wisdom into generosity, we understand that there is uh, impermanence as far as the giving of a gift, uh, the giver of the gift, There is impermanence in the receiver of the gift. And there is impermanence in the gift itself. When we bring wisdom to virtue, or sila, where we take care with our words, our actions, our speech, uh, this helps us to be able to discern what is going to cause harm, and what will lead to the alleviation of suffering. It is really that, that peace that makes it possible to see clearly as to what is the wise response to life in this moment. We need wisdom when we arouse energy. Or we can find that, you know, there can be the arousal of energy, but then it's not used skillfully. It can be, you know, energy that then moves into restlessness, uh, keeps us on the move. Um, But when we have wisdom with it, it helps us to use this energy to stay on track to really stay in alignment with this deep aspiration to awaken. We find when we bring wisdom to patience, it's what helps us to really cultivate patience, to discern that in, you know, maybe in a moment where someone has done something where we felt wronged, rather than to retaliate with anger, we know the wise choice is to be patient, to be humble in that moment, and not to simply lash out. And it's really the clear scene that will help to strengthen our resolve to live as skillfully as we can, to live a life that leads to Nibbana, leads to the fulfillment of the full potential of being a human being. Without wisdom, we will never really know true metta. It may be that uh, 
we can at times experience deep love for others, you know, such as a mother loves her child, but without wisdom, we won't know that one also has to let go, that attachment binds that love. And only by means of wisdom does equanimity develop. Equanimity happens when we're not pushed and pulled around by life. We're not caught in the vicissitudes of life. Wisdom helps equanimity to grow in our capacity to include the welfare of all beings rather than being uh, selective in who we give value to, who we cherish. It helps us to open our hearts to all beings. So wisdom really being an essential parami that is intrinsically tied up with all the other paramis. Taking a look at wisdom itself, the characteristic of wisdom in its highest sense is the penetrating into the true nature of experience. It's where we see clearly where our vision is not blinded, colored, confused, where there's no confusion, bewilderment. It's where our vision is not covered over by concepts we have about reality, perceptions, where it's not clouded over by our views and opinions. It's really an intuitive wisdom. It's not the intellectual understanding, but it it is instead the removal of ignorance through clear seeing. It's a direct and immediate relationship to life that is non-reactive and completely responsive. Without the clear seeing, our responsiveness is colored or conditioned by our habituated patterns, habituated behavior. But when we shine this light of wisdom, when we see clearly, we come to know things just as they are, without all of these overlays. As we sit, we get glimmers of this clarity. You know, it can be moments where we see something in a whole new way. Those aha moments where um, it's not so confusing. You know, it could be just even in the moment of experiencing uh, a pleasant experience and there's attachment. And we recognize the attachment. And we just simply know it as attachment. And it isn't setting up a whole series of, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. I'm a terrible meditator. Look at me. Here I am. I'm always caught in greed. You know? And my practice is not working. It's not going anywhere. But instead, we just recognize a moment of clinging. There's no entanglement. We simply see things just as they are. We experience it in moments of complete simplicity. You know, during the day we may be sitting and there's many sounds that uh, we hear. Many times there's a commentary, a reaction to the sounds. And then maybe for a moment there's simply hearing. Just the experience of hearing. There's a clarity that's present just knowing of this experience. I remember my first long retreat. And during that retreat, it wasn't 
that there was, you know, really wild, wonderful, exotic, beautiful, meditative experiences that happened that seemed profound. But it was just these moments of complete simplicity. And, you know, in these moments where in just a moment of hearing, there's just hearing. In a moment of seeing, just seeing. In a moment of touching, just touching. These moments are like stepping out of the jungle. You know, stepping out of that cloud of confusion. You know, and often they're experienced, you know, just with with the kind of the clarity of a crystal clear bell ringing. You know, just that moment, boom. And, and all of the concepts disappear. So this practice, it, you know, it's a really a wisdom practice, and it helps take us out of living a life based upon the superficial veneer of the way that we think things are, the concepts that we construct, um, and to understand how things really are, to see really deeply into life, to see into the nature of our experience. Our entanglement with concepts, with constructions of mind, is a deeply habituated pattern that we have. And you know, so often we're simply receiving misconstrued information and then believing it to be true. You know, perceptions that are based upon uh, assumptions, are based, based upon not seeing clearly, and then we live as if it's true. And it's just a web of confusion. I had an experience once where it was with a a yogi and it was just a beautiful moment of somebody watching how they had constructed reality in a way that simply wasn't true. At the time, I was teaching a one day in New York City and at the end of the day, this woman approached me and she told me that when she first arrived in the morning, she'd been disappointed to see me sitting up there because she had come wanting to sit with a particular teacher. And she had made inquiries to the sitting group there uh, to find out who this teacher was, and they had directed her towards me, because she had thought that she had sat with this teacher in the past and um, had found this person to be helpful and wanted to continue practice. So, you know, after doing her research, being directed towards me. She came, she walked in, she looked at me, and I wasn't that person. And so she went on to tell me that, you know, she at first had been disappointed, but then, you know, she found the day to be helpful, so she was happy with her experience. And then I questioned her a bit, and I said, because, you know, I wanted to help direct her, since I know many teachers, as to who that teacher might be. And so she started describing the person to me, and she said, well, it's a woman, she was about your height, Uh, She taught in New York a couple years ago. She taught at the Tibet Center, and she had a shaved head. And when she said this, uh, I knew quite quickly that I fit all those requirements. That (laughs) a couple of years ago, I had taught at the Tibet Center. I'd just come back from Burma, so I had a shaved head. And, uh, you know, I was the same height, <laughs> and grown or shrunk. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I said, well, you know, actually, I think it was me. <laughs> and she then realized what her mind had done. She said, you know, when I sat with you there, the Tibet Center held this atmosphere of reverence. And, you know, my shaved head had given me this serious quality. And so it had created an image in her mind. And then she went on to say, when she walked in the hall this morning, and the hall was actually a very old school building, and in order to bring some brightness, color, life into it, you know, there was all these paintings from young children plastered all over the walls. And I was sitting up there, you know, probably looking very much like I do today. And she said she looked at me, and I just looked like the all-American girl. (laughs) 
And so she'd just gone through this day believing that, you know, different person. And how many times in our lives do we do this? You know, we, we just take these superficial constructions and we believe them to be true. And then we get caught in this tangled web and confused. And it's no wonder that we suffer. It's no wonder that we are in pain. And so we need this wisdom. We need this clarity of mind. We need to have a steadiness of mind to see deeper, to see below the surface, to really see into the nature of experience. We all experience these moments when this veneer gets broken, when we see some way that you know, we've just constructed some story to be true and find out it's not. You know, and being a yogi in silence, we start to create stories about everyone around us. Uh, and then, you know, it can be just in one moment we recognize that that whole story was just a construction of mind. Pay attention to these moments. Pay attention to the releasing of these constructions of mind. It's so revealing. It's so lightening to the heart. So Vipassana, or insight meditation, is a wonderful practice to be doing when we want to cultivate wisdom. Because it's actually called a wisdom practice. It's called a wisdom practice uh, because through this practice we experience what's called the three universal characteristics of experience. That of anicca, the changing nature of experience, Dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of changing experience, and the Natta, the insubstantial or impersonal nature of experience. The scene into these three characteristics of experience really helps to change the whole direction of our lives. You know, the direction of our life when we're unaware, when we're not seeing clearly, is really seeking of happiness in very misguided ways. Where we, you know, it's a a very wholesome urge, but we don't see clearly. So we're trying to get things in the external world right. We're trying to get life to be in alignment as to how we think things should be. But when we begin to see into the true nature of experience through these three characteristics, it helps us to see how things really are. And out of that, we let go of trying to make things be a certain way and rest in the way things are. So just to speak a little bit about these three characteristics. The first being that of impermanence, the changing nature of experience, the changing nature of the weather in New England is probably the most predominant (laughs) um, gross sense of impermanence we may have experienced today. You know, the coolness, the, the rain, the thunder, the lightning, the sunshine, the warmth, the mugginess. You know, it's all in a day in our own experience of sitting, a continual stream of changing experience. Things continually arising and passing away again. 
through our practice, we begin to see that this is simply a fact of life. It's the way things are. And when we really deeply see this, it changes our life from really trying to make permanent that which is impermanent to resting in the truth of the way things are. It uproots the tendency to grasp, to hold on to, to want things to be a certain way. Because with the seeing of this impermanence and the knowing that it's a fact of life, we realize deeply there is nothing in conditioned experience that we can hang on to. And, you know, when we don't really understand that, it can sound like bad news. It can bring up fear, anxiety, vulnerability. But as that insight deepens, penetrates, becomes seen more clearly, it actually leads to a freedom of heart and mind in the understanding, deeply understanding of this truth. It really helps us to stop taking personally change when it happens. Because so many times change happens. You know, if something's been really good and suddenly it ends, we think it's our fault. We did something wrong. You know, just in your meditation practice. You know, there can be times when uh, it's going just the way we like it, effortless, mindfulness is strong, clarity is there, and then suddenly the energy level drops. And we take it really personally, a personal failing. And yet, things have just changed. I'd like to share a a poem that a yogi once gave to me about impermanence. Like snow covered boulders assaulted by crashing waves, I too find my seat. Solid and certain, I open to the white peaks of experience. Nowhere to go. I sit absorbing all that is and might be. Without reservation, the wild wind throws itself against my will and I surrender. Many times in our life, we want to defy impermanence. And yet, when we stand steady, when we simply sit, we sit with all these changes. You know, it can feel like the waves crashing against us. And it's just simply the waves of impermanence. And one day, we surrender. It's because life is in constant flux, is made up of all of these changing experiences, that there's no lasting happiness to be found within these experiences, which leads them to be unsatisfactory in their nature. You know, that we can't find a a happiness to hold on to through things being a certain way. We begin to see how constantly seeking this happiness in these changing conditions leads to suffering. Seeing into suffering can help us to take it less personally also. We find when we don't take unpleasant experience personally that we aren't defining ourselves by this unpleasant experience. It can simply be unpleasant experience. 
so much of our coping mechanisms for working with that which is unpleasant or painful is to blot it out, suppress, or deny. I mean, and this is our common response to any places that we experience suffering. As a result, we find that we shut down to life. We aren't vitally alive, awake, alert. We don't know how to open to the changing experience because there's so much suffering. Many times that we find we're continually trying to protect ourselves from this changing experience. And this can, you know, lead to deep fear, anxiety. Uh, You know, sometimes we find we can't sleep, we're so anxious. We've got growing tension within ourselves and can feel really backed into a corner through this suffering in life. We end up living in a state of resignation, Uh, We can find that our energy really collapses in life. Or we might find that we simply pretend that it doesn't matter and move through life quite listlessly. So it's really essential to learn to depersonalize suffering. And we do so through really inquiring into how it is that we suffer, inquiring into any of the pain that we experience in life. When we're not caught in the struggle with our experience, uh, where we're not simply seen, you know, often when dukkha or suffering is present, we think something is wrong. And just notice that in your sitting practice. Um, when, when things start to get unpleasant, you think something needs to change, something needs to be gotten rid of, rather than being able to just be with it. But when we stop struggling there, it will allow us to see into the very nature of that experience. This, in turn, brings about interest, a vitality in life, and it brings a freshness to our experience. So really looking to see, what is our relationship to pain in our lives? And we don't have to really look at the deepest pain of our life. We can simply look at how we relate to our knee pain. Do we define our, our period of sitting by our knee pain, our back pain? Or do we take an interest in this experience? Can we really put down the concepts, the ideas about what this pain is and experience this directly and immediately? Letting the mind simply be present with unpleasant experience experiencing the changing flow, not seeing it as something to be gotten rid of, exploring into the tendency of mind to want to change it, to be able to be honest when aversion is present, and then to look into the nature of aversion, to be with this experience, When we look into the little ways that we experience pain, helps us to understand more complicated pain in our life. I'd like to share um, a quote from Kahil Gabran, from the Prophet. And the woman said, tell us of pain. And he said, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses understanding even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know your pain. And could you keep your heart and wonder at the daily miracles of life? Your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy, and you would accept the seasons of your heart, 
even as have always accepted the seasons that passes that pass over your fields and you watch with serenity through the winters of your grief in the moments of grief in our practice can we watch that with the same wondrous awe that we have in the joyful moments. And remembering that this touching into the pain, the coming to know it, leads to the deepest understanding. Learning not to be afraid of our pain, not to run from it, not to take it personally, but relying on the tools of our practice to come close, to see clearly. We also find that as our understanding of impermanence grows, we see into this changing nature of experience. And when we're not caught in reactivity to that changing experience, we begin to see how life is so interdependent, how things happen in relationship to other things. Looking into our own experience to see how this is so. Many of you have just arrived here. When you arrived at the forest refuge, when you walked into the facility, when you walked into the hall, was there an effect? When we're we're affected by our environment, we're affected by the foods we eat, we're affected by so many different conditions in life. And it's all constantly changing. It's fleeting. You know, and when we start looking at this changing flow of experience, it becomes harder and harder to say who we really are. For those of you who have been sitting for a period of time, you know, just all of the different experiences you've had, even in one sitting, the anger, the sadness, the joy, Which of these are you? What happened as they arose? They changed. Could you control them as they arose? There's no way that we control them. We can plant seeds of wholesome seeds, but we can't control. Our experience is ungovernable. And the Buddha pointed to this as being a way that we could understand that there's no solid, unchanging self sitting in the midst of all this. That it's all fluid. It's all changing. It's all interrelated. If you've been sitting for a long time, it's so hard to define who we think we are. We've seen so much. So much has come and gone. Day after day, changing. As human beings, we have a great blessing. We have the capacity to call forth wisdom, to be able to know, to discern. We don't have to stay caught in um, a lawful unfolding, but we become aware, We, we see into this lawful unfolding in a way that allows us to unbind the heart. And this is what becomes wisdom. 
I'd like to speak a little bit about a few things that can support the unfolding of wisdom. And some of these are listed in the commentaries. The first is to abstain from harmful actions. And, you know, this very much relates to the virtue or sila that I spoke about, uh, where we take care with our actions, our deeds. Um, And we just know that uh, we begin to see clearly for ourselves the pain of acting unskillfully. And that really brings forth a lot of energy, conviction, uh, a desire to act in ways that don't cause harm, that don't cause pain. It's said that it's helpful to the unfolding of wisdom to have an inquiring disposition. You know, we need to take an interest in our experience. We need to have an interest that will take us deeper than the superficial level of seeing. We need to take an interest in suffering and the causes of suffering. It's also said it's helpful to engage in one's activities intelligently. And to me this means really engaging wholeheartedly, bringing everything we can to what we do in our lives, to how we are, how we practice, that we bring our full capacity that we have in this moment. And we can only work with what we have in this moment. But we do this with intelligence. It's also said to be helpful to listen and contemplate the profound teachings of the Dhamma or have discussions with the wise. And, you know, this is very clear in my own experience. How many times I've heard things through the teachings that, you know, have been like a light bulb go off in the mind, something that, you know, was on some level there, but not clearly understood. But then when it came out into the light of awareness, it becomes much more conscious, much more um, apart than of the wisdom through which we live our lives, through bringing it into consciousness. It also will call us to question how we live our lives, how we practice, how we're with experience. We can be so complacent, so laid back, um, and yet we'll, we'll hear things through the teachings that will rattle you know, the ideas, perceptions that we have. We get shaken up at times by things that we hear in the teachings. And for me, when I really get shaken up by something, it's a call to look within, to come to know for myself. Because to believe it intellectually is not going to lead to the the wisdom on the deepest level. It's simply an intellectual understanding. So when we're rattled, using that as a challenge to look for ourselves. It said to be helpful to associate with the wise and to disassociate with fools. The Buddha talked a lot about noble friendship, um, kalyanamita, spiritual friendship. Having people around us that can inspire us, that can call us uh, when we're getting lost in confusion, that can mirror that back to us. It's so helpful. Because delusion is so slippery. It's so amazing. (laughs) It's phenomenal. (laughs) And we need help. You know, I'm sure we all realize this or we wouldn't be here. You know, we know how hard it is to do this practice at home on our own in an unsupported environment. And so it's easy to see how supportive it is to... um, be able to 
be surrounded by like-minded people, to hear teachings, to get guidance. Very helpful. And then the Buddha once said, there are two things, monks, that partake of knowledge, wisdom, calm and concentration and insight. When calm is developed, so is mind. Through developed mind, lust is abandoned. When insight is developed, so is wisdom or right understanding. And through developed insight, ignorance is abandoned. So as a means of support to the unfolding of wisdom, we work a lot with the development of calm and concentration and of insight. Calm, concentration, the collecting of the mind, the unifying of the mind. You know, this mind that is so often restless, scattered, really harnessing all that energy and bringing it to experience. You know, um, we're probably, Joseph spoke about last week, there being uh, two kinds of concentration that gets spoken of quite often in practice. Uh, one of being samadhi or absorption concentration, where we just have one object of meditation and we're deeply letting the mind absorb into that object. You know, just, um, it could be the breath, it can be Brahma-vihara practice where, you know, with metta, we just keep bringing the mind back to the metta over and over again. Um, it can be working with the breath in the way of just bringing it back to the experience of breath. And, you know, this really helps to collect the mind, uh, bring about a peacefulness, a peacefulness that will serve us in uh, opening up to the changing nature of experience because there is this steadiness of mind. You know, through concentration we find the mind becomes very malleable, wieldy, and the, the, the experience becomes very workable. The mind's not so fixed and brittle. And so, you know, sometimes we work with it deeply through jhana practice, but we also work with it in our vipassana practice through the development of momentary concentration, where we learn to come back moment by moment to our experience and each moment. And the staying steady in that being with what arises in our experience develops a deep concentration that leads to liberating insight. And so, you know, this, this whole um, Vipassana practice playing so much upon the cultivation of calm and insight is very helpful with the cultivation of wisdom. There's some very simple ways that we can pay attention in ways that will help support the unfolding of wisdom. And, you know, I'm just briefly going to touch upon these because they are going to be expanded in a a future talk. Um, A few ways that we can really strengthen wise attention mindfulness that will support the unfolding of wisdom. One way is through using noting in our practice. Noting really helps to strengthen perception so that we can see more deeply. With noting, we're learning to uh, recognize in any moment what the experience is. And the noting is really to call us to be close enough to experience to know it. 
It's not meant to be an analytical investigation of what that experience is. But it, you know, it's as if you pull the mind so close to the experience that suddenly it's known. You know, that there's you know, something that you're experiencing, um, you know, whether it's a tightness in the chest, um, and you just put the attention right with that tightness, and boom, in a moment you might realize that there's sadness. Or it might be fear. Whatever it might be. But you know it through coming close. And, you know, if we're... I know from my own experience very well how earlier in my practice I would sit down and I wasn't using noting, and I could sit there for long periods of time. And at the end of my sitting, I would get up and I really wouldn't know what had happened in my experience. There hadn't been that closeness to the experience. So using noting to come close, to know um, this experience can also be helpful at times to pay attention to the tone of the noting, or sometimes even the noting in itself will be quite revealing. You know, it could be that if we're using noting, such as rising, falling, and then the abdomen, and suddenly we notice that the abdomen's rising and we're noting falling. You know, and it just lets us know. It's a feedback that we've disconnected. Or it could be with the tone of the noting that, you know, we're noting something and then suddenly we notice that, that, that we're screaming with the noting and that aversion is present that we hadn't been able to see. So it just acts as kind of a reflector in the mind to really see what's happening. It's really helpful to notice our attitude to practice. And that we really learn to practice with an attitude of care and reverence, respect. Know that we really learn to bring a devotion to wakefulness to each moment of experience. That we learn to bring a caring attention. There's a story from the time of the Buddha where there were some monks practicing in the forest. And these monks were kind of sloppy in the way that they were practicing. You know, they did things like at the end of a sitting, they would just carelessly jump up from the sitting. And then they'd walk around and they wouldn't be practicing restraint. And they'd be looking here and there. The Buddha came to know about the way these monks were practicing. And so he went and he spoke to them. And he told them that they needed to practice with the same care that one would have if one had a bowl of oil and was walking, carrying that bowl of oil and the oil coming right up to the top and not wanting to spill a drop. And you know, it's, we need to bring that same care to how we practice. And not in a rigid and tight way. And that's where, you know, if that care can be infused with devotion, that devotion to wakefulness, that desire to be free, not through grasping, but through caring deeply. If we find that we falter with this care, respect, this reverence, to take moments to reflect on how we've come to know the benefits of practice for ourselves. You know that we all have experiences where um, our faith becomes verified in our own experience, where we you know, have heard something from the teachings, and then suddenly we have an experience for ourselves, and we see that this is true. And it really helps to strengthen us, to motivate us. And so at times reflecting on some of these aspects, or at times reflecting on aspects of the teachings that do motivate us. It's also helpful to pay attention to what's happening in moments where mindfulness does become strong, where there is an effortlessness to the practice. What brought this about? 
one example of this uh, from my own experience is, you know, I've often found when I first arrive at a retreat, and you know, you sit down and there's a lot of restlessness in the body. And I noticed that if I could just really be with that restlessness in the body, if I could uh, bring that caring attention to it, there came a calmness in the body that led to a calmness in the mind, that led to a greater ease of being present with my experience. We come to know for ourselves that which will support mindfulness, that which will support insight arising and the unfolding of wisdom. I'd also like to speak briefly about uh, some of the obstacles to wisdom, because these we surely encounter. In the commentaries, uh, idleness is listed as an obstacle. And, you know, how I reflected on this when I read it was just to remember um, times in my life where there was an idleness where there was not mindfulness. And what happens in those moments? How I find for myself a lot of negative mind states will start coming in. A lot of perplexity about life. Uh, You know, it's feels, when I look back at times in my life when I was quite idle, was, you know, kind of that sense of of no purpose, there was the, the existential dilemma about what life is about. You know, and so I can really see how that's an obstacle to wisdom. And one can become quite paranoid, quite tight within that mind. It's also listed as an obstacle as having a fondness for sleep. We can probably relate to this, (laughs) or some of us anyways. Um, You know, uh, sleep is often called the poor man's nibbana. And sometimes it feels like if you can't have real nibbana, why not go for the poor man's? (laughs) But it's not supportive. You know, there is a level of uh, sleep that we need, you know, that will be helpful, that will be supportive. But that isn't inclusive of that fondness. You know, it's that fondness that calls us to bed at night. You know, that sweet thought of being in bed. Or waking up in the morning in that fondness of just being cozy within the sheets, curled up. And, you know, it just doesn't pull us out of bed or doesn't pull us into mindfulness. has us reveling in that state of fondness. I had an experience recently where I woke up and, you know, there was that fondness was definitely happening. And, you know, I know from being with that fondness that will often happen if I revel in it as I'll fall back to sleep again. And, you know, as I was reveling in that fondness, suddenly the thought came, what if I don't wake up? You know, what if I fall back asleep and I don't wake up? And just that thought was like, boom, I was awake. You know, it just woke me up. (laughs) And so, you know, we need to really work. I I think especially... um, here at the Force Refuge, where we don't have bells, you know, we don't have that wake-up bell in the morning. There isn't the same rigidity in the schedule, which is wonderful. And yet, we have to work really diligently, if this is a, a tendency of ours, um, to overcome it. And, you know, it takes a diligence to really work with this aspect. <clears throat> It's also said to be an obstacle to wisdom to have an indecisive nature. You know, and when we have an indecisive nature, something I too am very familiar with, uh, it leaves us very wishy-washy, you know, and unable to commit. You know, okay, this way, okay, that, you know, just kind of, and it keeps us on the surface. It doesn't allow that depth. It doesn't allow the mind to go deep. We're really caught on the level of the superficial. 
said to be an obstacle to have a wrong opinion of oneself. I would imagine there's probably a few wrong opinions of oneself that happen from time to time in this hall. And, you know, these can be anywhere from being so self-critical of ourselves, so hard on ourselves, so judgmental, to be uh, another way we experience it is to think that we are the best yogi. We are the most realized yogi. You know, um, we just are holding to some opinion, some view, and, you know, that is an obstacle to wisdom. The main obstacles to wisdom uh, can also be seen as the five hindrances as desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. These um, create a lot of confusion. You know, when, when these states arise and we identify with them, we, again, this is where we have, you know, some, uh, our view is not clear. It's colored by these mind states, and um, it's painful. The Buddha described them as makers of blindness, causing lack of vision, causing lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, and leading away from Nibbana. And in our practice, we experience these a lot. And so, you know, it's not at the times when they arise to be hard on ourselves, but again, to inquire, to look, to see into the nature of these experiences. And in that way, we turn them from being obstacles to wisdom to actually being the ground for liberation. You know, we can use them in our experience when we bring mindfulness to the experience, when we cease to nourish these states, because these states lead to suffering. And this, again, we see through our practice. So I'd like to summarize about wisdom through looking at the characteristics, the function, the manifestation, and the proximate cause of wisdom. The characteristic is the penetration into the nature, true nature, of phenomena. And this is what I spoke of when speaking about the three characteristics of experience where there is that, you know, we're not on the superficial level, the mind penetrates, sees deeply, sees clearly. And the function of wisdom is to illuminate the objective field. And when, you know, things are illuminated, the darkness is dispelled, confusion is dispelled. We see clearly, things are not misperceived. The phantoms of our minds become dispelled. And so this manifests as non-confusion or non-bewilderment. Everything is clearly seen. Clarity. And the proximate cause for the arising of wisdom is wise attention. And we bring this about through the strengthening of concentration and insight into the Four Noble Truths. When wisdom is held as a parami, it's held in the way that we cultivate this wisdom, we cultivate this clarity, to be of benefit for all beings. It's not self-serving. It's not for us. It's for the benefit of all beings everywhere. This can actually become a reference point in our lives. When we're called to do something, when we're called to just sit on the cushion, 
that we really do it. We really cultivate this wisdom in the service of all beings. This really takes our practice into the level of active engagement. It takes our lives into the level of active engagement. We can look at any moment when we're doing something to see how will, how will this benefit others? How is this of service? And it helps to bring a great clarity, understanding to how we can do this. How we can live up to the full potential of a human being. That we can embody wisdom. It helps us to embody all of the qualities of the paramis. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know things just as they are. So we'll close this evening with chanting of the sharing of blessings. Until I realize me.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.